0: Well, listeners to The Morning Show who think of me mostly as a classical music guy with a love for opera and, of course, uh, part of the world of public radio may be astonished to know that once upon a time I was a rabid fan of professional wrestling and not only uh, a fan but a fervent believer that what was transpiring in that ring was absolutely real. And, of course, at some point we come to find out that – that it wasn't real or at least not real in the simplest sense of the word but that doesn't mean that uh, what doesn't happen uh, in the world of professional wrestling isn't truly compelling and uh... and it can be uh, a tragic arena and uh... the history of professional wrestling is explored in a very fascinating new book called the squared circle life death and professional wrestling the author is David Shoemaker, also known as the Masked Man, who's been writing about uh, wrestling for a number of years. And this uh, book is published by Gotham Books, and I'm very excited for this opportunity to uh, speak with David Shoemaker about the squared circle. David Shoemaker, we welcome you to the morning
1: show. Thanks, man. It's so good to be on here. Thanks for having me.
0: You're, you're welcome. Can you explain to our listeners the uh, also known as the Masked Man part? <laughs>
1: Well, you know, every wrestling has his gimmick or his character. When I first started writing, I don't know, three or four years ago, my editor thought it'd be funny to to make me the masked man. It was a lot of thought, really, didn't go into it, but it ended up being um, a really cool thing for my career because people, I was an unestablished, unestablished writer, but uh, you know, all the readers started trying to guess who I was, as if I was some reputable new, I mean, sports writer who was slumming it writing about wrestling. Um, that's kind of the same way that you know the master wrestler gimmick has worked throughout history too. You put a nobody under a mask, and all of a sudden he's a deadly you know destroyer. Um, but hopefully, you know through writing about wrestling uh, on the web and now in this book, the Squared Circle, I've uh, I've you know hopefully shown that you don't have to slum it to be a wrestling writer. You can you know it's some it's a it's a crazy sport, but. Uh, it's it's part of the fabric of our country and it's you know it's it's ridiculous but it's it's you know it's nothing to be embarrassed by
0: right you uh, you mentioned that uh the roots of what we think of as professional wrestling today uh can be traced back to a couple of variations that um, maybe we 've seen here and there on a i don 't know an old episode of Bonanza or something I mean uh, something really out of our of our distant uh, national past. Uh, remind our listeners about the the earliest roots of what we think of now as professional wrestling
1: yeah I mean when I, just, when I started writing the book, I decided I was going to start it when you know it 's a history of bro wrestling, so I wanted to start when wrestling became fake because really the sort of fakery is the most intrinsic part of it right. So I go all the way back to, you know, the earliest days of the twentieth century and like the early nineteen hundreds, uh, in small town America where they would have these carnivals that would just travel from town to town and they were the best source of entertainment for most of the people that lived in the country. And one of the exhibitions they'd have would be a pro wrestling exhibition where they would wrestle each other for everybody and then invite local tough guys up to uh to, to try to compete. And just like everything else on the Carnival Sideshow, it was fixed, you know, there was no way you're gonna get one over on these wrestlers. Um, then, when you know cities started growing up, they had they started getting their own you know this evolved into separate rest, little wrestling promotions that stayed in each city, um, and then on and on until it's now this the WWE is this major national company, but it never lost its carny roots. You know, it's always been a put on from the very beginning.
0: Right. Although it's interesting, I, I at, at several points in in your book, particularly in the, in its preface, you, you you kind of make that point that everybody's. In a sense, in on the joke to to some extent, um, unless you're unless you're a little kid. I mean, uh, I remember watching professional wrestling and roller derby, and yeah. absolutely believing what was transpiring before my eyes. And I still vividly remember my parents uh, observing me watching this, and then them saying, "You know, all of these people who you know are trying to bash their heads in." They all go out for dinner after it's all, all over. I mean, the yeah. Los Angeles Thunderbirds and the Kansas City Bombers, I mean, and the whoever was just uh, wrestling uh – they all go out for dinner together, and they they laugh and joke around and stuff. And I remember thinking, "You are so stupid! I can't believe you think that." And of course, someday you you do you come to the realization that yeah, they probably do all go out for dinner when it's all done. But I yeah. mean, there 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 has to be beyond children, probably certain people who uh, are not as fully aware as the rest of us that this is all scripted entertainment
1: yeah i mean right, I, I, I found quotes throughout going back as far as like the fi- 1915 or 1913 or stuff like that where people are talking about you know openly acknowledging that wrestling is fake or being aware of it but you're right uh the process that you were talking about about people trying to and tell you the truth is it's called in the business smartening up you know sometimes you get to smarten up some fans so they, so they know what's going on um but, you know, I mean, there are people, obviously, that that, that believe it more than other people. I, I sometimes relate it to, like, you know, everybody's got an aunt or a grandmother who watches soap operas, and it's not that she thinks soap operas are real per se, but she'll talk about the characters as if they're real, you know? Right. Um, and I think it's that. I mean, part of what makes wrestling work is this unspoken agreement between the fans and the wrestlers to that we're going to interact as if it's a real sport. Right. And uh, some people, inter- some people are, are more invested in that than others. Uh, but, but what, you know, that's what really makes wrestling work. And even if you know that it's fake, if you're a person like me or you who's totally, who's fully aware of it, um, what really makes, for the most, for the juiciest moments, or the you know the kind of moments of greatest passion when you watch it, are moments where you're not sure anymore. Right, you know? exactly. That moment where you think, well, I know this is a put on, but those two guys in the screen—I read on the internet that they don't like each other, and now they're kind of acting like they really don't like each other. You know, and there's it's those ways those ways that it can play with reality versus unreality that make, that kind of makes it uh, the, one of the most compelling things going
0: and of course it's it's intriguing the the variations that one also finds between the the glitziest forms of professional wrestling which as you say fully gleefully embrace the fakery uh i mean in a way that wasn't true versus other brands of professional wrestling that are less on the national spotlight but which uh are not quite so glitzy and glamorous and which seem to be trying to present to the public something which comes off as much more earnest, much more truthful in a sense, even if it too is scripted to an extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, listen, when, when the WWF went national in the 80s and, and brought Hulk Hogan into everybody's home every week, um, it changed wrestling a lot, you know? I mean, Vince McMahon and Hulk Hogan were showmen at their very core, and, and you know, it was a lot of kind of just... just Panamime on a sort of mythological level, you know. I mean, it it wasn't nearly as real as the kind of territorial operations that had been, you know, in uh, all over the country and in the south, you know, just for a long, for a long period of time, where people it was just tough-looking guys who would who would beat each other up. Um, And now you kind of see that same that same um, parallel today with you know the WWE is still kind of family-friendly entertainment, this sort of wacky technicolor and uh and then you you know there's like indie wrestling companies around that starting with places like e c w back in the nineties emphasize you know real brutality in the ring. It's all put on, but they there's lots of blood there's lots of you know they hit each other with weapons they they you know it's it's a pretty brutal form and it's like like you said, even though you know it's fake uh you know, there's nothing fake about getting hit with a chair and busting yourself open. You right, know? and that's, so that's part of part of what wrestling is always playing around with.
0: You tell us the full story of some of of wrestling's uh, greatest legends, including uh, wrestlers like Gorgeous George from uh, years ago, or more to our own day, like Andre Giant and Macho Man Randy Savage, and so on. Uh, I really appreciated the fact that you also took time to introduce us to a wrestler called sd jones not so much for his specific story but the kind of wrestler that he is a jobber or a preliminary wrestler or an enhancement talent tell our listeners what these wrestlers are all about
1: yeah i decided if i wanted to cover the whole wrestling world then i got had to have a jobber in there i mean the uh you know, there is this sort of—it's—it's uh, it's a little bit less today because you know every match has to be meaningful in this sort of you know fast-forward society that we're in. Um, but yeah, back in the 80s and in the 70s when I grew up watching wrestling, uh, the vast majority of matches were you know an established star versus a nobody, just some—it looked like some guy off the street in the you know spandex singlet. They would put him in there and just they'd get him body slammed a couple times and dropped on their head, and that would be the end of it. Um, S D. Jones was one of was probably the most famous uh was the most famous jobber and and it was because WWF, you know, made him a star. They made him a guy that you would recognize and you could associate with. Um, not but he never won. Sometimes he beat other jobbers, of oh, ham and eggers was the other word for him, but uh his most important role was to get beat was to be recognizable and then to get beat up really quickly by, you know, established stars, which culminated most famously in his WrestleMania match against Uh, against King Kong Bundy, where he got just slammed and lost in in world record time. Hmm.
0: You also point out that uh, in the days when there were various Midwestern or regional uh, wrestling companies, that in many cases there would be a world champion who would get farmed out to these different constituencies around the country. And often in those situations, that world champion would be brought in to make the champion of that region look good, I mean, not that he would lose, but there would often be scripted as a very tight battle, which in a sense, would elevate the stature of of uh, of some of these regional wrestlers uh, to make them look even more imposing by oh my gosh uh, pushing world champion Jack Briscoe right to the edge yeah. and, uh, and and i mean I think that 's really interesting because it it really shows another level of sophistication in terms of of figuring out who's going to win and who's going to lose and why.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was an incredible era. And uh, the territorial era is what I call it in my book. And, and it was this period where every major city had its own wrestling company, basically. Most of them were united under the banner of the N.W.A., uh, the National Wrestling Association. But, yeah, I mean, they would, they, would, uh, they, they would have their own show. And if you lived in St. Louis or you lived in, you know, Seattle or you lived in Dallas... Pretty much as far as you were concerned, the biggest wrestling show in the world was happening right there in your town. Um, you know, there wasn't c- when cable television started up, and and uh, the WWF, and then you know at first it was the championship wrestling from Georgia, but there, but you know, local places would, would started going on national TV. That kind of undermined everything. No one, no one could think they were all alone in the world anymore. Uh, but yeah, back in those days, the only way that you had to know that there was something bigger going on was when Jack Briscoe or Ric Flair or whoever the national champion was would come to town, um, and always almost lose to your local champion. You're right. Um, it's, it's weird, but they, they always have to find a, a, a new and exciting way to tell the story so that, uh, so that, you know, you don't necessarily lose by losing.
0: Right. And of course, a big part of your book is the dramatic and often tragic stories of many leading wrestlers who have died way too young. Uh, Occasionally, Uh, dying in the ring from a a tragic accident and more often than not uh, dying because of health issues related to maybe the ingesting of of steroids or or other facets of the lifestyle. Can you just say a word about uh, this darker side of of the world of professional wrestling and and how difficult it was to, to get the true story behind some of these tragic figures?
1: Well, I'll start with Ian first. I mean, in a world that's built on fantasy getting to the truth is incredibly difficult um, that's part of why I focus on what some of these guys mean in the sort of broader metaphorical sense because as a fan what they mean to us is almost more important than who they really are uh, and that's a truth that I can get to but you know a lot of these guys even if they're trying to tell you the truth they've been steeped in this fake world for so long that the lines blurry to them too and which is an incredibly interesting part of the part of the story um, But yeah, I mean, the wrestling industry is is brutal. Uh, You know, as much as these guys just seem like invincible superheroes when we see them on TV, um, you know, people will tell you that. I mean, they've done studies where wrestling a wrestling match is like playing a game of football on the offensive line, and you know what NFL players do it 16 times a year, and professional wrestlers do it 200 or 250 or sometimes 300, Mm. and then after every match, you. Got to, you know, go out at night and then wake up and do it all over again and maybe drive in a compact car with three 300 pound guys for 300 miles in between, you know? I mean, it's a really, really tough life and it's something that these guys really have to commit themselves to. Um, but it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just the brutality of the sport, because, but like I was saying, with the, with, the, with the unreality of it, I mean, these guys a lot of times start believing their own hype and start believing that they're invincible, even if it's only, you know, painkillers and steroids. that's allowing them to believe that. Uh, it's a tough life. And, um, and it's really, at the end of the day, what intrigues me is the way it underscores the difference between the gods we see on TV and the mere mortals that, that you know, live the lives the rest of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. The book is The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, published by Gotham Books. It's author David Shoemaker. David Shoemaker, congratulations on writing a fascinating book.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, man. Thank you.